You are listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. A very good morning to you on the first day of the month, Wednesday the 1st of June. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong and this is Money Talk on Radio 3. Peter Lewis here with the latest business and finance headlines. The city of Shanghai began from midnight last night to ease a two-month citywide lockdown. About 22.5 million people, or 90% of Shanghai's population, are living in low-risk precautionary zones that have been infection-free for 14 days and will be allowed to return to work from today. City authorities said residents in these zones should not be restricted for any reason from entering and leaving their housing compounds. China's factory activity contracted at a slower pace in May as COVID-19 curbs in major manufacturing hubs were relaxed. The official Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index rose to 49.6 in May from 47.4 in April, marking the highest reading in three months, but also the third consecutive contraction. The services sector also remained soft. The official non-manufacturing PMI in May improved to 47.8 from 41.9 in April, the third consecutive month of declines. On Tuesday, China's cabinet, the State Council, released further details of a stimulus package aimed at reviving the pandemic-hit economy and announced a package of 33 measures covering fiscal, financial, investment and industrial policies and said it will inspect how provincial, provincial governments implement them. India's economy expanded 8.7% in the year through March 2022, missing the government's forecast of 8.9% as virus curbs dampened activity. GDP grew 4.1% year-on-year in the first quarter, but slowed from 5.4% in the prior three months. Government officials said the period may have marked the low point of the year. And inflation in the Eurozone soared to a record 8.1% in May, up from 7.4% the previous month, as the prices of energy and food surged. Inflation is now running at more than quadruple the European Central Bank's target of 2%. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Oldcroft, Martin Henniker from St James's Place Wealth Management, and RTHK's international economics correspondent Barry Wood. Do please get in touch. We're an interactive show and love to hear your questions or comments. Text them to 6393-5925. You can email moneytalk at rthk.hk. Take a look at our Facebook page. There's a lot of information there on Money Talk, uh, on Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Or you can tweet us at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK. The month of May saw weakness in global equities, long-dated government bonds, the US dollar and cryptocurrencies, whilst oil soared. The FTSE All World Index sank 1.9% last month. However, a rally in US equities last week helped claw the S&P 500 back to unchanged on the month. The benchmark index closed out the month Tuesday with losses of 0.6% to end at 4,132. Earlier this month, the index briefly fell into bear market territory, down 20% from its January high. It's currently off just over 14% from its all-time high. 
The Dow was also flat on the month after closing Tuesday 223 points lower at 32,990. The Nasdaq Composite Index fell 2.1% in May and is down four months out of the last five. Yesterday, it was 0.4% lower at 12,081, but it remains in bear market territory, down 23% this year. In Europe, the regional stock 600 index fell 1.6% over the month, whilst the UK's FTSE 100 rallied 0.8% over the same period. Hong Kong stocks closed higher on Tuesday in three days of heavy buying that lifted the market around 6.5% over that period. The Hang Seng Index yesterday rose 291 points, or 1.4%, to an almost seven-week high of 21,415. For the month of May, the benchmark index is up 1.5%, but for 2022 so far, the Hang Seng is down 8.5%. The tech index rose 3%, eliminating its losses for the month, but for the year, it's down 21%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index added 1.2% to 3,186, and for May, it is up 4.6%, but down 12.5% year-to-date. In the commodities markets, the price of crude oil has risen to its highest level in two months after the EU agreed a partial ban on Russian oil and signs that China's easing its lockdowns. Brent crude surged almost 15% in May and stands at $122.84 a barrel. Copper is down over 2% over the month and gold was off 3% in May to $1,837 an ounce. Treasury yields were lower on the month with the 10-year down 9 basis points at 2.85% from a peak of over 3% earlier this year. However, the long end of the yield curve rallied, with 30-year treasuries climbing 6 basis points. European bond yields rose as inflation in the eurozone hit a record high. The yield on the 10-year German Bund climbed 19 basis points in May to 1.12%. And the US dollar index fell significantly in May, down 1.4%, and closing at six-week lows after hitting a two-decade high earlier this month. The euro this morning is trading at $1.7 and a quarter cents. The bucks at 128 and three quarters Japanese yen. Sterling is worth $1.26 and nine Hong Kong dollars and 89 cents and the Chinese yuan is down 1% over the month closing on the mainland at 6.67 versus the dollar Bitcoin tumbled 18% in May and is trading at $31,800 right now and let's take a look around Asia-Pacific stock markets. In Australia, first of all, the ASX 200 up about a third of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has just opened 0.4% higher. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea is flat and looks like it's going to be a flat open for the Hang Seng later on this morning. Time's 8.10 and oh happy day after nine months away. I'm very pleased to welcome back to Money Talk Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant Stuart Aldcroft. Welcome back to Hong Kong, Stuart, and welcome back to the programme. Yes, and good morning to you, Peter. Thank you very much. It's been uh, fun to be away, but it's even more fun to be back. And we're also very happy to welcome Martin Hennecker, Head of Asia Investment Advisory and Communications at St. James's Place Wealth Management. Always good to see you, Martin, and hear from you. Yeah, thanks. Happy to be back. And over in Washington, D.C., we have our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Morning to you, Barry. 
Good morning, Peter. So as you heard there, the city of Shanghai began for midnight last night to ease a two-month citywide lockdown that aims to restore business activity, production and daily livelihoods to full normality by the end of June in a gradual and phased manner. The lockdown was originally supposed to last nine days in a staggered fashion to lessen the impact on the city's economy. Instead, it lasted for 65 days, crippling Shanghai and the national economy. Um, Martin, we've lived with this for quite a while now. A number of businesses, uh, CEOs who are based in Shanghai, uh, were telling me, really, this is D-Day for, for the city. How, how significant is this that we're now starting at last to maybe see the lockdowns eased? Well, I think it might actually be quite significant in terms of um, investors regaining some confidence on China, particularly given that um, valuations are very low in any case. Stimulus measures, you know, that the Chinese government has been announcing almost like every second day. Uh, overall, they're actually quite large packages. If you're looking at the tax cuts, infrastructure packages, they're actually larger than what Trump had rolled out in terms of the tax cut, what Biden announced in terms of those infrastructure packages. The only thing China can't really do is cut rates a lot uh, to, to keep the UN reasonably stable as the US increases uh, its interest rates. Uh, but when you take everything together, uh, I'm actually quite optimistic on the rebound potential of the Chinese market. We always say, you know, hold positions as part of a diversified portfolio, no volatility tolerance. There are still obviously lots of macro uh, macro risks out there. Uh, but then historically speaking, uh, clearly the, the, the value is there. Uh, on this note, maybe just very briefly, another great regional opportunity where people have been similarly pessimistic on is uh, Japan, in my view. Uh, it's interesting, Peter, that uh, Shanghai should be opening now after uh, what, more than two months being locked down. Um, and I think people in Hong Kong should take note of it, because although Hong Kong is not in a lockdown situation, what it is going to do is give an indication of how China would like to see the, the opening up of its, of its cities and its markets. And, and um, there's a lot for Hong Kong people to learn from this. Now, of course, one of the big issues with Shanghai is that people can't travel in and out of Shanghai without going through usual PCR tests or quarantine um, and that means residents of Shanghai leaving or people going there on business so that's where it becomes very similar to Hong Kong. Mm. Well one of the things we don't know is just how long in effect uh, the, the, the sort of the mass testing that's going on uh, will continue. There's reports of tens of thousands of lab testing booths being set up um, uh, across cities up and down the country. And, and the goal is to have residents basically just a 15 minute walk away from a test, which they might have to do every 48 hours. So there's still going to be a lot of onerous conditions um, on residents in Shanghai, isn't there? Yes, and, and I think that there is still very real concern within China, and clearly that's being shown in Shanghai, that um, there aren't enough people vaccinated, the vaccination that they've got isn't very effective, and so the concern is that uh, COVID will pick up again. And, you know, unlike in most parts of the world which are now open, um, people in China are still petrified of the impact of COVID. Mm. Barry, how does this compare with the US? Do you have to have regular testing there? Is there still the aim to, to try and get uh, COVID infections down to zero or has life got back to normal? 
No, I think it's the latter, Peter. Uh, life is pretty much back to normal, and you have a maze of regulations, both cities and states. There is no national policy. We do have the Centers for Disease Control, but they are less influential and less dominant in setting policy. So, yeah, we've got a maze of regulations. I think, as Stuart said, essentially the rest of the world is opening up. And, uh, yes, the, the, the mask mandate was lifted for commercial air travel. Uh, you still see it in some cities, but it's very different from what you've described as a, you know, the zero policy in China. And, and what happens when you see a flare-up in cases in a, in a particular city or a particular state? Does that go back to more testing or, or more restrictions? How, do, how, how does the country deal with it? Well, I can give the example of my daughter, who's a school teacher in music in New York City. And uh, a week ago, she tested positive for COVID, but she learned that there was only five days required to be out of the school for COVID. Now, she presumably is testing negative, but there was no test required, and she went back to school today. She was not happy about that because she has complained that the school system has been very lax. So that's just another example of how you have in this case, regulations for a school system that are different from the city of New York, different from the state of New York, different from many localities and across the country. But Barry, that's just a reflection of the impact and the different strains that COVID has is producing. Um, it's true in the... I've, I've spent most of the last nine months in the UK, and it's true that um, as you see more people getting COVID and, and in these latter strains, the impact is much lower. Um, and, and the requirements for people to isolate, to, to go into hospital, if they've been properly vaccinated, the, the, these requirements are, are almost non-existent now. And, and yes, I think that's a very important point, Stuart, because, yeah. yes, people have been vaccinated. I mean, in the case of my daughter, she's been vaccinated and boosted twice. Yep. So, yes, and these are mild cases most, most of the time. Yes, exactly. So, so it really doesn't um, make a great deal of difference whether it's five days, seven days, nine days. Um, if you've got it, you, you, get, you get rid of it quicker with vaccination and mm. the symptoms are very mild. It's because the people have not been vaccinated and or, and or the vaccination that they've been having is not very effective that, it's, that has caused uh, places like Shanghai and Hong Kong to become much more onerous in terms of their, their restrictions. Martin, we've had a whole range of economic measures announced over the last few days. We've had the, the State Council um, announce its package of 33 measures to try and revive investment and consumption in Shanghai. We had this 50-point plan announced over the weekend that includes sort of subsidies for companies, for people to go out um, and buy electric vehicles. And then we had Premier Li Keqiang basically urging the country uh, to make revitalising the economy uh, the, the priority. And what what do you make of these measures that have been announced? Are they going to do the trick? Well, I do think, as I sort of tried to hint at in my earlier comment, that actually when you add up all these measures in terms of you know, the, the financial amounts really thrown at the issue, they are, they are really very substantial. Now, in terms of GDP rates, um, it's, it seems still very unlikely that we are 
going to make the 5.5% target mm. this year. But even, even if you say, says that, doesn't he? He's given yes, up on that. Yes, yes. But even if you take a lower figure, like some somewhere around the consensus, uh, I, I pick a number here, 3.5 is one of those that I've heard thrown around. Now, just to put that into perspective briefly, actually 3.5% growth for China, where, where China is now in terms of the GDP, actually represents 590 billion of growth. Now, Thailand's overall entire economy is 546 billion. So uh, China would still add one whole Thailand to its economy, which isn't really too bad. And then the US GDP hasn't exactly been soaring as well as you uh, might recall the, the quarter one GDP in the US was revised downwards for quarter two. Right now, Atlanta Fed projection is 1.9. So I don't think it's it's a disaster as such. Uh, and, and as mentioned, I think there's very good rebound potential. One other thing related to equities investing, while, while it's carry, while it's volatile, etc. You know, you mentioned uh, earlier, Peter, the Eurozone inflation uh, announcement, and, and that's not something isolated to the Eurozone. Inflationary pressures have been building everywhere around the world, especially when you look beyond just the CPIs, but look at producer prices, which are above 10 pretty much everywhere uh, you look at. And from an investor's perspective, it's also, some, it's also a significant risk to bear in mind because we have negative real interest rates everywhere. And some exposure to equities, at least, can help in one way to protect uh, investors over time from inflation as companies with an edge in the market can typically pass on rising input costs to consumers over time. Stuart, while you were in the UK, how much were rising food prices and energy prices a, a, a topic of conversation? Is it being something that's being felt hard there because the inflation's well, surging in the UK? Yeah, it's it? massive, massive, and it's um, and of course being isolationist in a little way, uh, many people in the UK blamed the uh, UK government for that, and 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 failed to realize that this is a worldwide issue, not just a, a country issue. Mm. Um, um, I think the biggest problem has been that uh, the UK and many European countries um, uh, subsidized energy prices and continue to do so uh, to the point that um, retail uh, users, consumers of, of electricity were protected from the very uh, steep rises over the last couple of years. But that subsidy has been um, uh, reduced, or, or, or at least the, the rise has exceeded the amount of the subsidy by a large amount, and, that, and that's now hitting people in the pocket. And so many people, many, many households in the UK had seen price rises in energy alone of about four times their previous mm. figure, and that, that's mm. quite penal. Of course, uh, food prices have been going up too, and, 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 and that uh, has hit the pocket just as much. And, um, so it, it is a tough time. But the, the people have to realize, hasn't, it hadn't been made as very clear as it should be, that it's not a, a, a UK phenomenon. It's a Europe-wide problem. It's a worldwide problem, and, um, and will continue to be so until um, probably we've seen some settlement of the Russia-Ukraine war and um, a calming down of prices generally. Barry, it's become a big political issue in the US as well, hasn't it? Could well end President Absolutely. Biden's chance um, or end the Democrats' chance um, in Congress in the, the midterm elections. Yes, absolutely. And everything Stuart said about the UK applies here in the US as well. 40-year high in inflation. It's interesting that uh, President Biden met with uh, Jay Powell today. It was the uh, fourth time they've met since 
the president took office, but the first time since he was reappointed, and uh, you know, came out and said inflation is number one problem. So yeah, I think that uh, there's unanimity now after all the stimulus that we're now going to fight inflation. But uh, what's the impact of that? We've got a very distorted economy here. Yes, inflation is the big issue. It does threaten the Democrats and the president for the midterms coming up in November. But you've still got strong growth in some areas. You've got labor shortages. And then you've got massive store closings as the retail sector goes through this uh, kind of disruption. So it's, uh, I think the best uh, description might be this is a mess. Yeah, and Barry, I think, I mean, you've highlighted a couple of issues there, which I think are very important for people to understand. Unemployment in the UK is lower than 3.7%, and many of, many of those people are not willing to work, so, they, so the unemployment rate is really low. It's the low, just about the lowest in Europe. Um, but also, um, interest rates are about to start rising, and that is a, a double-edged sword. On the one hand, people with mortgages are going to find that going to cost them more money, but the numbers of savers out there who've got quite a lot of money un in their bank accounts or other accounts in savings who've been earning nothing are going to start earning something. So, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword, this uh, change that we're going to see over the next year. Barry, what was the point of um, President Biden meeting with Jerome Powell today? Because he came out of the meeting saying he respects the Fed's independence and it's their number one priority. It almost sounds like um, he's passing the buck to them, saying it's up to them to do something about it. <laughs> yes, yes, I think he is, in fact. He wants the photo opportunity of saying, look, uh, we have shifted po policy. We have pivoted. Uh, we're no longer talking about stimulus to get the economy going. We're talking about uh, supporting the independence of the Fed in terms of bringing the inflation down. But you're right, Peter. He is really saying it's the Fed's responsibility. <laughs> and I think, uh, as all of us would agree, it's a bit more complex than that. I would just add to what Stuart said about uh, the U.K. And, and, and the distortions. We had home prices now up 21 percent in the past year. Now, that's not a slow economy. That's a fast economy. And at the same time, consumer sentiment and market sentiment are declining. So figure that one out. Martin, it's been passed over to the Fed, but what else can be done apart from central banks raising interest rates, which is a pretty blunt tool, isn't it, in this situation? Should governments be doing more? I mean, we're seeing in some countries... Um, uh, cost of living allowances being paid to people. The IMF has been encouraging that. Uh, we have some countries talking about price controls like, like Mexico. Are, are, are there other solutions that people should be thinking about to try and get inflation under control? Well, I'm not really an advisor to governments. I'm advise, an advisor to investors, and that's complicated enough at times. But I do want to really emphasize one thing that I think, you know, in a lot of the debates is really completely missed in this discussion of interest rates and what central banks are doing. So going back to this news of the ECB uh, and the Eurozone inflation rate of 8.1%, and Peter, you mentioned the 10-year German bond yield or bond yield is 1.1%. So taking out the calculator, 8.1 minus 1.1 is actually minus 7. So investors there are losing or have been losing 7%. Now, the supposed hawks yesterday um, you know, there was discussion among ECB policymakers. So the supposed hawks are trying to get the ECB to raise interest rates in July to 0%. 
Mm. Um, you know, in the U.S., when last time around in the 80s, when inflation was at those levels that we are seeing now, interest rates were 15%. Why are we not even talking about this? And, and then yesterday, mm. Italy's central bank governor came out and said, given the uncertainty of the economic outlook, the rates will have to be raised Gradually, uh, Spanish uh, central bank had same thing. You know what they really should say, or what they really think. Given our unsustainably high sovereign debt load, we can't really do anything about this. No matter what's mm -hmm. inflation, the only way out of this is basically screw savers through sustained massively negative real interest rates. And that's something savers need to be aware of. Central bankers might not have the room in many countries to raise rates massively. In the U.S. too, in Japan too, where you have this high debt burden. So you need to watch out for yourself and just be conscious of this various risks that you see even when not investing. Isn't that going to be, if we get to the point where actually central banks do realise they, they can't raise rates as much as they're talking about, either because of you know, the debt levels and uh, what it may do to the economy, isn't that going to be quite good for equities if we start to see maybe um, a, a recalibration of just how much rates are going to go up? Yes. I mean, the first thing I always say, be, be cautious, don't leverage. There might be more volatility. There's still so many geopolitical risks, etc., etc., etc. So be conscious that things might get more volatile as central bankers are forced to pretend to be tougher for a while and raise a bit here and there, of course. But ultimately, I think negative real interest rates will persist. And yes, equities can be one thing to help protect from inflation, just like any tangible assets, property, etc., etc., um, you know, as companies pass on rising prices to look at keeping their margins. Uh, so definitely the answer is yes then. Uh, not many people think of equities as an inflation hedge, uh, but over time, you know, history shows that uh, this can help. Stuart, this has been a pretty horrible start to the year uh, for, for investors, hasn't it? Equities pretty well around the world are lower mm. than where they were at the end of December, but also bondholders have suffered uh, the worst start to a year on record uh, this year. So, you know, if you have a diverse portfolio of equities and bonds, um, everything has gone down in it. What, what do you do? Well, you know, the flags were out for bonds last year and the year before when interest rates reached that negative level and there was only one way to go and that was up. Mm. That's negative for bonds, whatever way you look at it. So if you were still holding bonds in a rising interest rate environment, you're not going to do very well. And that's the, that's the truth of the situation. And I think that's going to continue for a while now because although I, I'm not entirely in agreement with what Martin was saying, I do think central bankers are going to raise interest rates when they have the opportunity. They may not raise them as fast and as high as they would like but they will raise them. And any, any rise in interest rates is usually treated negatively initially by markets until they realize that it's not going to be very impactful and then markets bounce back upwards. I think that's the, that's the sort of scenario we're more likely to see over the next six months. Yes, it's been a pretty grim first six months of uh, to 2022, but 2021 was pretty awful as well, wasn't it? So um, when you look at one against the other, not, they're probably just continuing of last year's experience. So I think we've got a, probably a better second half of this year likely to occur than we, ha we, we had for the last six months. Well, great. Thank you all very much for, uh, for your comments. You heard there Stuart Allcroft, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant. Martin Henniker, who's Head of Asia Investment Advisory and Communications at St. James's Place Wealth Management. And our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3.
Let's take a final look at the markets for this morning. First of all, in uh, in Australia, the SX200 is up about a quarter of a percent. Stocks are also rising in Japan. The Nikkei 225 is up half a percent, half an hour into trading. Uh, the Cosby is flat. Looks like it's going to be a flat open for the Hang Seng as well in uh, just under an hour's time. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock with more news on the business and finance front. COVID update is coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Anna Fenton. The weather forecast for today, hot with a few showers, sunny periods during the day. The maximum temperature is going to be around 32 degrees in urban areas, a couple of degrees higher in the new territories. And the outlook is for it to remain persistently hot with sunny periods and a few showers in the next few days. The temperature right now is 28 degrees, 82% relative humidity. The time's 8.31. Here's Ben Che with the half-hour news. COVID-19 clusters involving two bars in Central are continuing to grow, with 10 more customers who visited the Iron Ferries bar testing positive and four more cases coming from the Central bar. Dr. Chuan Chukwan from the Center for Health Protection says officials are still trying to trace the infection source of the clusters, but they don't think it's crucial. She spoke through an interpreter. I don't think it is very critical whether we can find the source patient. We have 200 cases in the community. Everyone behind each case that there is a transmission chain. So we are not worried about a super outbreak. We just want to know how big uh, some clusters are in order to uh, reduce the transmission. Yesterday, Chief Executive Carrie Lam said Hong Kong will not be further relaxing social distancing measures for the time being, as the SAR is experiencing what she called a stagnant COVID situation. Hong Kong reported 329 new COVID cases yesterday, of which 35 were imported. Incoming Chief Executive John Lee says his administration will be keeping the current electoral system for a long time. He made the remark in response to a question about electoral reform after returning from Beijing, where he met President Xi Jinping and received his appointment letter from Premier Li Keqiang. President Xi has made it very clear that the improved electoral system is in full confirmation with the principle of one country, two systems, and is taking consideration of the actual situation of Hong Kong and satisfies the development needs of Hong Kong. And it should be maintained for a long period of time. The prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has described Ukraine as a crime scene and said the tribunal was carrying out its largest ever investigation there, with plans to open an office in Kyiv. Karim Khan warned against sacrificing the rule of law for short-term interests, saying defending it was essential for peace and security throughout the world. He was speaking with Ukraine's Prosecutor General Irina Venediktova, who said her officials had already identified hundreds of Russian war crimes. Suspects. Every day in Ukraine we have extra 200-300 war crimes. For this moment we have near 15,000 cases only about war crimes. We started future thousands of cases about what we see in Donbass, transfer of people. We started several cases about the transfer of children, adult people to different parts of Russian Federation, then of course um, torturing people. You are listening to the news on RTHK.
Good morning and welcome to COVID Update. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, Jim. Chief Executive Carrie Lamb says it's unlikely there'll be any further relaxation of social distancing measures for the time being, with a little change in the Territory's COVID-19 situation. Authorities had planned to implement a third-stage easing of anti-epidemic measures later in June, but...